What's going on, everybody? Welcome to Making the Turn, the premier green industry podcast that highlights professionals across many areas, including golf course management, sports turf, sales, business, education, landscaping, and more. Making the Turn is hosted by me, BJ Parker. I've spent nearly 25 years in the green industry, mostly as a golf course superintendent, and now I want to bring the knowledge and insight from myself and the many people I've met and continue to meet along the way. Making the Turn will provide valuable content for those looking to learn from others, gain useful tips and tricks, and be better in their daily lives. You can find Making the Turn on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please be sure to rate, review, share, and subscribe. It helps keep the podcast growing and getting better. Thanks for listening, and welcome to another episode of the Making the Turn podcast. What is going on, everybody? Welcome into another episode of the Making the Turn podcast. I'm your host, BJ Parker, and I appreciate you joining me. Today, I'm excited to have Mr. Tim Morgan with Aspire Golf. How you doing, sir? Very good, BJ. How are you today? I'm doing well. I'm, we've made it through all this snow and craziness up here in, um, in Nashville, so uh, I'd rather be down there where you are, though, I think. <laughs> yes, it's not too bad today. It was a little sunny in 71 a couple hours ago, and, and unfortunately, like a lot of other people, we're, we're getting ready for some more rain. So. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you sitting down and chatting with me, and we get to do this virtually, and that's what's cool about it, and I'm looking forward to our conversation and uh, having a little chat with you. All right. Where so you're down? Uh, tell me where you're located exactly. You're in, you said you were in Hilton Head. Is that yes, Hilton, Hilton Head Island, South Carolina. We yeah. we made the uh, the move about a half a dozen years ago from New Jersey. Okay. Down here, um, based on trips and friends, and and uh, New Jersey getting a little chillier and uh, a little more expensive. And <laughs> you know we're we're Jersey people, but uh, uh, we we kind of fall in love with the low country. Yeah. Do you get to play a lot of golf down there? If I had my way, I'd play every day that ends in Y. Yeah. Um, and then go out there and perfect my flaws, as my dad always told me. <laughs> but I do play. I played a little bit, hit some balls yesterday, and and uh, I, 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 I like to play. Yeah, me too. I, I went to school on a golf scholarship and then tried to play, but it seems like I haven't been able to play as much, and I have definitely not been down to your ne- neck of the woods. So I would love golf to Golf Where'd you go to school? I went to uh, school at UT Martin over in West Tennessee. And, oh, excellent. Uh, got a golf scholarship there. And, um, yeah, uh, I've been playing golf since I was seven. So, been, been Well, come on down. Yeah. I, I'm not Bring as good up. as I used to be, but, you know, I can get it well, around. we all are. <laughs> None of us are. No. But, uh, so you had to. Well, uh, I just want to have fun. Oh, absolutely. I, I, I Golf has been a blessing for me. It's given me everything I've ever done, and I love it, and I don't see myself not doing something with it, you know. And, uh. That's afforded me to, the opportunity to talk to great people like you and and do this podcast. Thank it's been you. fun. You had a well, uh, you had a, an opportunity to come up and um, chat with us at the Tennessee Turfgrass and and uh, really enjoyed what you went over and talked about during that. And I I really my goal is to kind of meet you and and talk to you and and get um, uh, you know have some more conversation and dive more into that and what you do and all that. And, and I know you've got a lot of cool stories and neat experiences and things like that. And I think my listeners will really enjoy uh, what you have to say. Well, thank you. And I do want to thank the Tennessee Turf Association. I really enjoyed it. I have a lot of good friends uh, that I have met over the years in Tennessee. Uh, and, and Dr. Brosnan is a good advisor and yep. the listener was great and the association. And 
I really appreciated everybody's uh, sticking around to listen. And in spite of my computer malfunctions, <laughs> uh, which more to do with my ineptness than anything else. But I want to say thank you to the association. That was very nice. Well, they would appreciate it. And they're big supporters of mine and what I'm doing. And, and uh, I'm sure they'll hear this and they'll appreciate it. And and I know that they loved having you on and you, you brought a lot of great, great stuff. And and uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to diving into that a little bit, you know. Um, what did you what do you think about the uh, before we get real deep into it, what do you think about all the virtual and the conferences and everything? You, you kind of make your way around, I imagine. How how do you think that's being perceived and how do you think it's going? Well, from what I've been told, I think everybody has is, is accepted it and, and being patient with the glitches that we've had to endure to sure. get it done correctly. But I think anyone would, would tell you that the interpersonal, being at a show, regardless of size or, or region, is, is more fun than, than staring at each other over a screen. Sure. Because that's what I think our, our group is all about. It's, it's, it's camaraderie. It's friendship. We like to joke and kid with one another. We also like to lean on each other's shoulders uh, because we all only only the difficulties that we endure are 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 difficulties that we understand. Right. I don't think anybody else understands what we go through, but when we're around a group of people that have uh, similar likes and dislikes and frustrations, uh, actually the face to face time is really really positive. But we'll we'll endure. Um, you know, I did. Did uh, the, the your show in Tennessee? I, I listened to uh, a Rutgers Field Day and a North Carolina State Field Day that was done virtually, and I found it to be quite educational and entertaining. And and everybody did the best they could to make it work. Yeah, I mean, obviously we have to adapt and in different things and different times. But I I know that the interpersonal being seeing the everybody you work with and don't get to see very often and that. That's I, I when I, when we were talking about it, and I had some conversation with Dr. Brosnan about doing. I, I said if we could somehow create a virtual way to in, to interact in a better way, because I know we can't all be together, then that would be the best possible scenario in this kind of way we have to do it. And I and I, I don't know if it's possible really because a lot of those chat you know Zoom calls that have multiple people on it gets kind of you get. It's, it sounds like a, a you know bunch of people talking in the trash can or whatever. But uh, you know, I, I I I think you know just from what I understand the teaching part of it, where you're getting a lot more information and you can sit there and listen and take notes and you're by yourself. I think that part of it was a lot more. I, I got more out of it that way than than sitting in a room and you know you might be on your phone. It's hard to see the screen sometimes, you know, and so. I, I do think that the, the, the content and the teaching part of it, I think many people were able to kind of uh, absorb more of it. I, I totally agree. But I will tell you from uh, – I'm, I'm a little bit – those people that know me uh, closely and, and have watched me speak publicly, I'm a little an, more animated than some. Uh-huh. I, do, I do like audience participation and – and then the president and I, like I said, I appreciate everybody's patient with my my presentation. I hope they they did benefit. But in a presentation like that, I like to ask people, you know, when you're talking about interview questions, PJ, how would you answer this question, or how would you sure. shake a hand, or how would you? And people like they, they look at you like, well, I, well just having fun. Everybody relax here. And I like to reach out and ask the audience questions and get feedback from them. Right. And because you can you can look at people 
um, you can look at people out in the audience and watch and judge their facial expressions and see who's sleeping, who's not sleeping, and and try to have a little fun. That's what I miss about it. Uh, but you know, when you when you you look at it, here we are doing a FaceTime on a cell phone that's basically a mini TV screen. And that has helped me, and I think it's going to help a lot of superintendents when you're out in the field. And I'm looking at, say, let's say we're trying to do a polo control program on, on Bermuda Fairways or Zoysia Fairways in Tennessee. And if Dr. Brosnan has the time, we can do a FaceTime and I can show him or the superintendent can show him exactly what's going on. When, when I was coming, we didn't have that opportunity. Yeah, you took a yeah. picture, put it on a slide, <laughs> you went to a projector, and uh, hopefully you got the message across. So I think that's really cool technology yep. now that we can just bring a a real smart individual out onto the property with us. Yeah. And I'm the first to, to admit I don't I don't know the answer. I know someone who does have the answer. And if it's you know if it's a herbicide issue, you know, call Dr. Bross. Hey, Jim, here's what I'm looking at, and what do you think? If he and if he's willing to do that, and, and even if he, there's a small fee involved, that's fine. Yeah. But that pinpoint knowledge is is really really fun. Or you know, if, if I'm trying to work out a swing flaw and I'm playing playing golf with my wife, she can kind of get a hold of my instructor and say, hey, DJ, here's what he's doing. What do you think? And you can go, oh, there's no hope. He's never going to fix that. <laughs> but there's kind of cool stuff to the whole aspect of it. So glass is half full. Oh, absolutely. I think the technology is is going at a rapid, you know, at a, at a very rapid rate and we're able to use it in many different. And you touched on one that I think is going to be big is where, Guys like Dr. Brosnan that have a lot of knowledge don't have to get in a car and drive somewhere to take a look at it. Mm -hmm. you can, if they have the time, they can, you know, they can be right there. And even on your job, a superintendent, you, an assistant might call a superintendent okay. and need something right away exactly. or, you know, we're mixing up chemicals and have a question. You can see things, whereas, you know, it, it just wasn't the case. Even I mean, I started in, I mean, I've been on the golf course since 94 four or five but i mean back then you know not you know wasn't really anything available and, and it's just it's just come a long way and yeah and it and who knows where it could go i mean that's well that's it yeah you get the the, the droid the visions or something you, yeah. you're walking with me down virtually walking with me down the fair <laughs> i think it'd be it's going to be interesting down the road but yeah. i see it a lot in, in designers i see it coming into the turf grass world and even uh you know, just golf course setup or just certain issues on the property. And then obviously teaching aspects, you, know, you just get on the phone and you just do a, you know, panoramic view of what you're looking at. And if someone can't make a meeting, I think we're, you know, we're, we're getting more and more sophisticated as an industry every day. Right. And you know, the, the Carl Spackler days are certainly over uh, though. There's a, there's a little hangover with some people that still think that's, you know, we're just grass cutters and that's fine. You know, that's their ignorance, not ours. So. Right. Well, I'd like to um, kind of back up a little bit because it's the first time we're actually getting to talk a little bit. And, and uh, I have, through our buddy, our Mark Stovall, he's kind of told me a lot about <laughs> you. And, and I and thank him for making our, our connection. And, and ultimately, we're sitting down and doing this. But talk about your, your career, how you got to what you're doing, and, and sort of how you're contributing and doing things in the golf business today. Well, I, I, before I do any of that, I'll, I'll apologize uh, for any name dropping or, or you know, anything that I've been come encountered or have encountered in my career. It wasn't to make me seem like I'm someone special. I've been blessed 
to have the career that I've had and to meet so many great people in this industry and go everywhere in this industry over the last 40 years. Again, I don't want it to sound self-centered or anything, but uh, as I said many times, uh, you know, my mom was in labor when my dad was playing in a tournament. And uh, so I've basically been on a golf course 63 years, (laughs) you know, when it comes down to it, because uh, my dad was a, was a wonderful player. Um, I mean, just a wonderful player, a good amateur player. And, and, uh, you know, after dinners as a kid, I mean, we would go to the golf course. We lived a mile from the golf course and he would practice and I'd be his target dummy. And he'd tell me where to stand and he'd hit balls at me. And, and then we'd go mess around a little bit on a short game. And, and all I wanted to do as a little kid was go fish because <laughs> we had a great upstream going through. This is a, a club in Connecticut. Sure. And, uh, you know, he taught me then the next thing, obviously, was to learn how to caddy. And the first thing he said is, you know, show up, keep up and shut up. And this is what you do. And then once I learned how to caddy, then I was allowed to go out on the golf course and start learning to play. My mother was also a wonderful player. And because of my dad, I, you know, I turned 16. Well, what are you going to do? Well, I get a job on the golf course. So I worked on the grounds crew and caddied on the weekend and did all that stuff. And I just. I was always on a golf course. I went to college. I went to uh, Niagara University uh, on a swimming to swim, and I obviously wasn't going to make a lot of money swimming. And that, after my senior year, then again, my dad, who was you know the, the ultimate uh, you know practical guy, said, "What are you going to do now?" I said, "Well, you know, I've got a biology degree. I said, hey, we're going to do this golf turf stuff and work on a golf course." And he said, "Well, you're not going to do it in Connecticut." And I said, "Why not?" He said, well, you're only going to work for six months, and the other six months you're going to be playing beer league hockey and going to the bars when you're done. So he had a – and this is a wonderful story. Uh, a, uh, his caddy, when when he was playing professional – not professional, but high-level amateurs in the 50s, is a gentleman named Fred Mita. And they, they struck up a relationship. Freddie went into the Army in the 60s and worked on a golf course in Fort Bragg. And – go to the University of Massachusetts turf school and Fred then got into the business and he became the godfather of Myrtle Beach. He, he was the superintendent in South Carolina when he moved from North Carolina down to Myrtle Beach. So the month after I graduated, I put what little I had in the back of the car and went to Myrtle Beach and worked for Fred, who as an interesting story became, he was one of the few who turned down the Augusta National job because they weren't paying enough back in the 70s. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it didn't go over too well. And they said, well, it's all the prestige. And Fred said, well, you can't put prestige in your back pocket. So (laughs) he politely declined. That's a good line. I'm going to write that down. (laughs) But anyways, Fred was the man. He got me me to Pinehurst. He got me, uh, you know, just from council and and as a friend. He got me to Pinehurst, North Carolina. I worked there, uh, which got me to the helping uh, down at Pontevedra when Pete was finishing up. Uh, the Players Club. I worked there, went through the first Players Championship. Um, and it just kind of snowballed from there, which got me out to Dallas, Las Colinas. And as a side note, going back to Fred, Fred ended up becoming president of the Carolinas Association and, and eventually winning a Distinguished Service Award for the Carolinas. So I'm, I'm super proud of Fred. And, and other than my father, Fred Mead is the guy that, that got me to where I am today. I uh, did a stint with American Golf, which was fun because uh, it got me involved in the public side and what the uh, 
the daily fee player is looking for and what what uh, they want in a golf course and just the pure enjoyment of and, and the relaxation of not being at a blue blood equity club where you know you got to talk in hushed tones and wear sports coats for lunch and things like that. Um, and then the USJ called in 1985 and, and spent uh, from 2008 with them and then started on my own gig. Uh, once once the USJ kind of redirected about 40 of us in different directions, um, and off we went. So now it's just, uh, I just try to help. I've been, I've been blessed to get everything I have from golf, uh, from my wife, who's the angel that God gave me, to meeting my rock and roll heroes and my yeah. sports idols and everything that uh, you can imagine. So now it's give back time. So if I can help one that's half my age, someone that's half my age, male, female, uh, to get better in this business, whether it's turf grass or golf profession, design, build. I've been around the best. I've seen the best, and I'm just wanting to give back. That's what life is about now. Well, I, I believe 100% with the, about that. That's uh, that's pretty great. What um, what was your time like with uh, You said you worked with down at Sawgrass. Was it being built or, or how? It was It was just finishing up. Yep. You know, Pinehurst, uh, I was at Pinehurst at the time. Okay which was a great job because I, we had tournaments and we had six courses and it was just a wonderful learning experience yep. down there, but they, they were financially strapped and it was hard to count on getting a paycheck. Yes. Yep. Way back in the day when uh, they, I can't remember the uh, development company that was out of Houston that owned them at the time. And then they had, they were, they were obviously Pinehurst was profitable. So the profits were diamond head corporation. And we're going to the other properties. Uh, and then they kind of had financial issues. And a guy named Malcolm McLean, if you see McLean trucking around the southeast, yeah. that was his company. He bought the resort for a couple of years to try to make a go of it. And then eventually Club Corps with Robert Dedman, which produced you know Brad Coker and Bob Farron and, and the history of Pinehurst after 1984, right. thanks to Bob Dedman and, and his, his people. Um uh, but Alan McCurick at the time was a tour agronomist that would do the Hall of Fame Classic. And I got to meet Alan because I think I was I was changing holes during that one or something like that. And, and uh, I said, Alan, you got to help me find a job. I can't get a paycheck. Now, he was a, 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 a Maryland guy, UMass guy. Um, and he said, well, we're doing this little project down in Jacksonville. Maybe you should just come on down there. So I said, what's that? And here again, he said, well, we're building this golf course. It's going to be the home of the PGA Tour. And I said, I'm in. And uh, packed up what little I had and lived in the maintenance center for about two months till I could find a place and worked 100 hours a week and went through the first players championship uh, in 1982. And uh, the rest is history. I mean, it was kind of funny. I got to meet, you know, Pete Dye, Dean Beeman, Dave Pulsweet, all these great people. Yeah. And uh, uh, oh, there you are. Yeah, well, no, no worries. Had a little hiccup in the giddy up. <laughs> but anyway, Scott got of Ponte Vedra because Piners and they'll, they, I don't know what we were, we were paid like six bucks an hour. You could work all the hours you wanted. Yeah. And, and what a great experience because, as I said, I, I met Pete Dye and got to be friends with Pete, who was a, a dear mentor and a friend until he died. Yeah. Obviously, his wife, Alice, Dean Beeman, a lot of the players, uh, all, the, all the tour rules officials. And that was from probably 81 through 80, about two years. And then Dean Beeman's goal at the time was to build all these tournament sites because, you know, the old, just like the same argument today, sure. the ball's going too far. The, you know, we're building 
back then we're building 7,000 yard golf courses. Now we're building 8,000, which I think is a bunch of baloney, but that's a different story. <laughs> and they said, we're building these TPCs around the country. And we've got three openings, you know, one here, one in Dallas, and I think one in Denver. And I said, oh, Dallas sounds pretty cool. So off I went to Dallas, which was just, I mean, uh, it was it was just so great because it was working with the Byron Nelson Golf Classic where I got to meet Mr. Nelson awesome. and, and, and the stories and, and how nice he was to me and, you know, all the stuff we did for the three Byron Nelsons that I went through. And uh, it was just – and then he's, he's, he's my hero as far as golf is concerned. Now, your roles at those courses, were you superintendent or what? what, what? Yes. Yeah. Well, upon a Eater, we were all just uh, – Dave Polstaway was kind of the, the construction head of the, the project manager – and um, Alan McCurick and Dennis Ledger were the two tour agronomists that uh, kind of oversaw the agronomic portion of that. Gotcha. Uh, and then we went through, again, as, as going through 80, 82, where, you know, Jerry Pate through Pete and Dean in the lake, and we all freaked when he dove off the bulkhead because I were like, it's not that, it's not that deep. But everything, everybody happened. It all happened uh, for a good reason and off, off the players. And I love the players. Geez, I tell you, I've been to so many players' championships over the years. Uh, just for a couple of days, I'm going to go down in a couple of weeks. Uh, my dear friend Paul Vermeulen is now the head turf guy for the tour, and, and we're just going to kind of walk and look around before the whole week starts because I was there from the beginning, and it's just kind of fun to go back as much as I can. How, how much of the construction were you uh, did you get to see or was a part of down there? Now, I didn't see the, the, real, the real big earth moving. When they really mostly started draining, draining the wetlands yeah. and building the, the berm, and it was mostly the this the finished construction, the growing, and then gotcha. the tournament preparation. Gotcha. What's your thoughts about uh, Pinehurst as it's evolved over the years, especially number two? Well, again, having worked there, I consider Pinehurst the home of golf in in the United States, and you know it's fun to work there. There's a lot of great people. Uh, you know the the Bob Ferret of my time was a gentleman named Bob Depensier who came down from uh, Westchester Country Club. And it was just, you know, it was another one of those work as many hours as you want, learn the business. It's big-time golf. We had amateurs. We had a tour event. Uh, we had resort play. We had public play. We had private play. We had bentgrass. I mean, it was just a great uh, learning experience, and the name certainly doesn't help. Uh, it certainly helps you, and it, you know, it doesn't help to ha have that on your resume. But what I noticed is we we started going back to the Sand Hills uh, for USGA events. Uh, we had the girls' junior at Pine Needles. We had the women's amateur. We had the world amateur at Pinehurst. And I'm not taking credit for it, but I do recall it, the women's amateur having the players or the uh, – was one function we were at where P.J. Boatwright, who was the head of the rules and competitions department for the USGA, who I worked directly for, Judy Bell, who was a women's committee member and eventual president of the USGA, and several other, we were having a conversation. We should bring, really think about bringing the U.S. Open to Pinehurst. And PJ said, you're out of your mind because they have bent grass. It'll be soft and mushy. And I said, no, no, no. That's not going to be the case. Right. So for several years, we, we mulled that over. And then we kind of went back with the, the senior open. And, and then eventually uh, we, we kind of said, listen, the, the technology – they're going to rebuild the greens. We're going to do all this great stuff to Pinehurst number two, which should host the open. And of course, it, it eventually got the vote from the committee. Um, and in 99, you know, the rest is history with Payne and, and the whole weird stuff that went on there. And, and, uh, 
and they've they've had a great tournament history since, and they should have the open there on a on a regular basis, as because as I said, Pioneers to me is the home of golf in this country, and now the USGA is moving a, a partial headquarters there or whatever, however they're spinning it down there for people to, uh, which they should have done. Actually, I think at one time. Uh, the USGA, we had the opportunity to purchase Piners, and I think there was an offer, kind of a very casual offer made to Bob Dedman, and he said, no, I, th- I think this is going to be a pretty good investment. I'm, yeah. I'm going to hold on, hold on to it. So he was a smart guy. He knew what was going on. <laughs> well, I, my only experience, I love Pinehurst. It's pro- I tell people it's probably my favorite course, uh, number two, that I've ever played, and I enjoyed it, uh, I, you know, because I'm I, – I, <laughs> It's never, I've never been on a golf course where about three holes into it, I told the caddy, don't tell me not where not to hit it because that's yes. where I keep ending up hitting it. But well, it was, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was so, it was so intimidating from just, you know, off the tee, it's not much, but you're hitting the balls into the greens. And I've seen uh, people that were playing with putting balls off the green. And I just, I really fell in love with that golf course. I'm a huge Donald Ross fan. And I just, you know, that, that to me was, you know, as far as his architecture, I just love, you know, playing his golf courses. But I, I want to go back now that the changes have been and just see if I love it even more or, you know, I, I, it's been a while since I've been, but um, I'm, I'm curious to see what I would think about it now. I think, I think you'd really, really enjoy it because when I worked there, oh, back in 1980, that's how number two looked. Now, it wasn't as natural as it is today but where we had at the time a single row irrigation system so what received water had bermuda grass and everything else was just sand hills and though they did plant a a little bit too much of the ornamental love grass and kind of made it a little goofy but that was how it was right and it's it's i played it i played it a lot and i absolutely love that golf course and you know, it, 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 it challenges every aspect of your game. And those greens, you know, again, what they are is, is diabolical in the <laughs> fact that you can't get greedy. And, and again, you know, again, I'm not, I apologize for the name you drop. Don't need to, don't. <laughs> but I did meet, I did meet Payne and Tracy Stewart when he lost in a playoff to Bob Eastwood in the 1984 Byron Nelson they were walking back, and that was his reputation as being Avis back in the day. And I picked him up and gave him a ride up to the clubhouse, and then I would go to work for the USGA. And he would, so we would chat every year and became kind of professional friends, you know. Right. So we were we were chatting uh, at lunch during the Open in '99, and he said, "Well, how do you play this golf course?" And I said, it, "Listen, I mean, you know, you you are who you are, but my advice would be hit it in the middle of the greens." He was like, well, no crap, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's some really sound advice. And I said, no, 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 no. I get what you're saying. But listen, according to the construction figures, there's only 600 square feet of flat area as an average on these greens. You cannot go flag hunting. You 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 must stay in the middle of the green. And at the time, he made a great, I think it was a great birdie on Saturday on number three. Flag stick was back left. And if you chase it, you're looking at six at best. And he didn't. And we always joked about it in the short time after 99 uh, until he passed in, in October. And, and, uh, and, and the, the little trivia, I, have, I don't know, somewhere in the closet here. 
the vest that he wore on Sunday, uh, I actually gave him, I ran in to get a pair of scissors out of our office and bring out, so, so he could cut the sleeves off on number two on Sunday. And then I had to go back and do my other stuff. So I have those scissors somewhere. So he was, it was a lot of cool stuff uh, like that. But Piners is, is, is unique and it, it, it looks like it's no big deal yeah. until you start hitting the golf ball. I and would... it's, 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 it is, it is my, one of my favorites and what Bob and his staff have done over the years to rejuvenate that those golf courses and that resort is, it, you know, it, it, it just is wonderful. What it really is, it, I, it makes sense. I, I wonder, I, you bring a good point. I mean, wonder why the USJs wouldn't have their, you know, be uh, that be where their offices are. Cause it's right. I mean, either there or maybe Pebble, but it, I mean, it makes more sense. Well, again, we looked at Pebble beach way PJ told me way back in the seventies, but the USJ didn't have the financial wherewithal to make that deal happen. Right. Uh, but, but there was a, there was obviously a bias uh, with championship sites and, and, and turf grass research and what have you toward northern uh, cool season golf courses sure. uh, early on. And that is fortunately and, and rightfully so has changed. But uh, it, it, Pinehurst would have been the ideal headquarter location for the governing body because not only could you do turf grass research and development, uh, but just think about equipment and ball issues. And then you could play any USGA championship you wished on just about any one of those golf courses. Yeah. <clears throat> well, um, what are you, what is your affinity more with? Is it more of the agronomic <clears throat> side of it or do you, you get, uh, you, you have a passion for the, the, the design and sort of the architecture of the golf courses? Well, I would say a little bit of both. Um, you know, it, I'm, I'm a little design oriented because I'm not saying anybody can wave their arms in the sure. trees and say, we need to put a tee here. But again, having worked with Pete early on and, uh, Bobby Jones, uh, I've worked, you know, with Reese when we were with the open, uh, and a lot of neat architects. And I, I, again, I, when, when smart people speak, I kind of listen and sure. I learned a lot from these great guys. And for some reason, I mean, I go back as a kid, pushing melted ice cream around and at the end of dinner and the, Hey dad, wouldn't it look good if we had a green up here and, and all that kind of stuff? Uh, because my dad had a wonderful eye for, we would be, you know, it was kind of the family Sunday drive, whatever in the right. summertime after dinner, go for a ride and get an ice cream cone. That was the big deal back then. And, you know, he'd stop and say, wouldn't that make a good golf hole going through, you know, the, the Parker's field there, that would make a great dog leg par five. And that's, that's, I guess I'd lean toward the, the design side, um, I think I have an eye for it. Uh, and I'd like to, that would be a career goal at some point, maybe to, you know, try to do what they do and, and you know, work the magic in the dirt. Yep. And then at Las Colinas, obviously working with Mr. Nelson and changing some things, uh, you know, for, for Las Colinas and when rebuilt the golf course and then all the time with the USGA. And I got to know all these guys. Um, and, and I did, you know, some of the things they see, the vision they have is just amazing. And, and, um, I'm very thankful for the knowledge they passed on to me just as an outsider. Yeah. Well, I won't ask you who, who your favorite is or anything like that, but, uh, but, um, well, favorite old school, I guess 
you know, having worked at Pioneers and understanding the Ross mentality, I would I would say Ross and Tillinghast. Yeah. Uh, modern day architects, obviously Pete Pete's my hero. So yeah. uh, I think what what he does, and, and he, as I've re- I've written, he's it's like your crazy uncle that says pull my finger after Thanksgiving dinner. You know, he just wants to pull pull the wool over everybody's eyes. But man, you look at his work; it's just some of the stuff he did is just amazing. Yeah. I had a chance. Uh, you know, Dave Stone down at the Honors. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah. My bird watching buddy. That's it. Um, we he he was. Uh, I had a chance to sit down with him. I told him afterwards. I wish we had three or four hours, but he he talked a lot about uh, his time with Pete Dye and 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 just spending time with him. Had some great, really cool stories, and and I, I would imagine that uh, that guy was an interesting guy to be around for sure. Well, yeah. Well, I remember they re, we redid the went to fifth green at TPC and then basically in the middle of the night <clears throat> parking vehicles around the thing and, and reshaping it and Pete drawing stuff on the back of a brown paper bag and trying to show the guys what to do. And, and I mean, that's just, you don't get that anymore. It's too technical. And yeah. you know, you look at, I think we're, we're Gil Hans is one that gets out dope and some of the modern guys, I think Andy Staples does a nice job of you know, obviously Bill Coor, you know, they just kind of do it all by feel. Yep. So I think that's what you should do with architecture. I get the, the cosmetic, the commercial aspect of, you know, you, you get a, a, a very wealthy billionaire wants to build a testament to themselves. And they say, OK, BJ, you know, here's here's a kajillion dollars. Just make it the craziest thing ever built. Then right. OK, off you go. So yeah. I, I kind of like playing the ground. That's why I love playing golf in Scotland and Ireland and and over there, just playing on an old beach is kind of fun. Yeah. Well, full disclosure, that's what I wanted to be when I first got into it. I, I wanted to be a golf course architect. And I really have a – that really still is a passion of mine. I share that same goal with you. I would love to, you know, find, you know, build a nine-hole golf course or have, you know, some design credibility. I, I got to work with the Fazio team when I was at Golf Club of Tennessee building um, the, the new short game facility. So I was – Hands on. Oh, okay. I was hands okay. on with you know just kind of you know watching how they you know design things and you know move stuff around and so that really that's really been a passion of mine and you know they were building courses left and right in the nineties and so I thought yes. it was going to be something that I could and I and I got a really good piece of advice from a from a, a golf course architect that I knew that I still know and he said you know learn how to take care of the golf course first and then if you want to get into it because uh, and I and that and then it became a passion to be a superintendent and I'm, and I've never, never pursued the architecture side of it, but well, I, I bet you could, I bet you could with no problem because if you've taken care of the ground, like the superintendents, I, there's a lot of sharp superintendents out there. Yeah. That, you know, once they start moving things around, I mean, look at Chris Spence, Chris Spence was a, a golf course superintendent and has made a wonderful career out of being a very knowledgeable golf course architect. So when you care for the finished product, you get an idea on how to build it. So I think you'd be perfect for it. Yeah. I hope that one day I'll get a chance to, I'm, I'm certainly, uh, would, uh, would welcome the opportunity. I don't, you know, it, I won't give up on it. That's for sure. I, I think it'd be a, a blast because, you know, just something I've always wanted to do. And I, and I really, I'm like you, I, I'm more of the old school, Donald Ross is my favorite, but, um, you know. All right, what's your favorite Donald Ross golf course then? Well, I ha- I can't say that I've played a ton of them. I'll tell you a story about it. Uh, I went over to, uh, my parents lived, lived over in North Carolina, and we and we were going over to play golf, and they said, well, we're going to go over to this, play this golf course, and I think you'll like it. 
And um, so we we pull up to the gate, and it was Raleigh Country Club, and I and and I instantly knew something was different about this golf course. Uh-huh. And we were playing with a member who was their my parents' na- neighbor, and so we were standing on the first tee, and uh, I just kind of looked out, and I I glanced over at him, and I said, "Who designed this golf course?" And he, and, and he said, "Well, it's a Donald Ross." And I said, "I knew it. I I just yeah. felt it. I and and I and I had a really great time. It's one. It's one. It's a story I'll never, you know, forget telling. Uh, I played it only one time, but uh, I guess I guess just no, when you step on it. I mean, I, I get. I guess I could probably count on my, you know, maybe both hands how many times I've played a Donald Ross. But like Holston Hills is one that stands out to me. Um, yeah. You know, Raleigh Country Club." Um, obviously Pinehurst number two, those are probably the, you know, three or four that I can think of off the top of my right. hand, but right. Yeah. But I, I, no, that's cool. you know, I, I, I have a, I wish that, and I had a, I have a buddy of mine who's really knows a lot more about the architecture side of things. I really would, would like to get up into the Northeast and, you know, play the Tillinghast courses and, and some of these, you know, exactly. uh, you know, courses that, uh, the older, you know, that they seem to kind of leave, you know, leave the land alone and just kind of do their thing for the most part. So. Yes. Well, that's awesome. Well, I'm sure you get, you get to find you some land and when you win the Powerball, off we go. Right. Uh, yeah. Who knows? I tell you, the funny thing though, is, is that I'm in love with Oakmont. I don't know why, but Oakmont just for some reason is like, that's my, that's, I've never played it. I've never been to it, but I, just with all the new changes and the trees that are gone and a lot of the things, I want to try to recreate that somehow. I don't know. And maybe get my little Donald Ross twist to it or whatever. And uh, No, it's it's an amazing place. I don't know. I did a couple, several opens in Amateur and uh, <clears throat> worked with, you know, four four different superintendents there for championships. And I've seen it when it was totally – forested yeah and you couldn't you know it was just way over treed and there was a reason for that yeah to what it is today where, where mark coon started you know covertly dropping trees during his time at oakmont to the point where they just took them all down yeah and you know you look at the old pictures and there weren't any trees on that golf course and it's a if anybody wants to learn about drainage that's the place to go uh, what what phones did when they built that golf course to move water through these canals and swales and what have you across the property? Uh, not only do they move water, but they're an incredibly difficult hazard or penalty area now. Um, the greens, you know, there's always the debate on green speed. Where you know, I mean, we had them over 15 for the 07 Open, and that's a, a little crazy, but oh. that's Oakmont. Yeah, you know, you know that going in, yeah. and that's what it's there. It's kind of bust your chops and. And the, the best player wins. Uh, but it's it's a fabulous place. And I, I I haven't been back the last, obviously for the open in seven and, and sixteen, uh, there was a more trees and they cleaned off uh, where the where the turnpike runs through the golf course, which used to be the old railroad tracks, which ran downhill into the town, and that's where all the water dumped. That's where phones dumped all the water into, but you couldn't see across the turnpike from the clubhouse because uh-huh. there was that piece of property was, was tree line. Well, all those trees are gone now. So you can basically see all 18 holes or get a glimpse of all 18 holes from the back porch of the clubhouse. Wow. Yeah. It's, it's sensational. Yeah. And the greens are just to die for. I'll get up there and play that course or get on it at some point down the road. I, I, 
I don't know what it is about it. It's just something I, <laughs> I enjoy. I enjoy just the look, the feel of it. And then, like I said, I've never even been there. So Well, you would. And the cool thing about it, if you have any, you know, uh, championship history or, or, I mean, you look at the people who have played and won there. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it is a Hall of Fame. Yeah. It's just an amazing level of golf there. And that's what Oakmont does. It, yeah. it brings out the best in the best. Well, what are you doing nowadays with uh, Spire Golf, and what are you what are you trying to help contribute and give back to from that aspect? Well, a little bit of everything. Um, try to be full service, you know, little yeah. company. But uh, obviously, Turf Grass Consulting. Uh, we do some master planning, long range plans, uh, search and recruit for clubs. I, I don't, um, as I say, ambulance chase just because a club has a superintendent that may have moved on i i usually get asked to do some searches sure. and we do as you saw during the tennessee turf grass with some career coaching uh on interviewing and how to do better uh upgrade your just overall persona to to, to move on up in the golf world because yeah. as, as hard working and as intelligent we are it just needs a, a, occasionally to just put a little polish on the apple uh, and that's what we're trying to do and um and whatever else, I've done some event work. Uh, I was, uh, you know, volunteering with the New Jersey State Golf Association as a rules official, kind of just tailgating on my time with the USGA. Right. So I can do a whole bunch of things, and uh, it's usually I get these calls, can you help us here, can you help us there? And if I can, I will. If I can't, I know a lot of smart people that probably could help you out. So mm-hmm. uh, that's, that's kind of what's taking up my time, um, and then just enjoying the low country. Well, I- that's probably fun in itself right there, I would imagine. Yeah, you know, I, I, it's kind of funny. It's funny. It, it, it's interesting how the world works yep. and, and how you, you know, it's, it's kind of like Forrest Gump where he says, Mama, do we, what's my destiny? I did, <clears throat> you know, are we all just floating around here, you know, like a feather <laughs> in the breeze? But here I came down to South Carolina 40 years ago and fell in love with South Carolina. I mean, I lived on Myrtle Beach when there was not the tourism and not the development that there is today. And, you know, the place opened up with a, with Can-Am week where everybody came down from up north and jumped in the ocean when it was 60 degrees outside. But um, until Labor Day, then it got, there was no one around. So from Labor Day to Easter, you had some of the most beautiful weather and peaceful solitude uh, that you could ask for. Yeah. And I just love the low country. I'd go down to Charleston, come down to Savannah, just, you know, in the wintertime, nothing else to do, take a drive. And here we are back on Hilton Head yep. and right in the heart of the low country. So it's it's just, you know, people, and it's not that it's any better than anybody, any place else. People like the mountains. People like the desert. Sure. People like whatever. We just, it's just a different mentality in the South. And, and I've always enjoyed it. And that's why I'm back down here. Well, I th- and I didn't actually get any of my wife used to being called Miss Karen. She that's not something. To, I said, don't worry. <laughs> that's yeah. okay. Just smile and say, thank you. Yeah. When they tell you to bless your heart, then you got a problem. <laughs> <laughs> that's the you truth. Know? Yeah. If they say, bless your heart, Miss Karen. We got a problem. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I'm, I'm, I'm really big in these days. And I've, as I've gotten, uh, uh, progressed in my career and some of the things I'm doing is helping trying to, help individuals or clubs or whatever. Um, I'm big in the career development and sort of trying to change the narrative about our industry because it's still, I feel like it lags behind. 
Uh, you know, like you mentioned earlier, we still get the old grass cutter mentality and things like that. Um, expand a little bit on what you were talking to the TTA about for somebody that might not have heard it or, you know, kind of give a, a, a overview. Cause I know what you, your talk was very informative about how guys can improve and work through some different things and, or things that they might be going through, say in an interview process or, or just different aspects. What, what do you look to tell people or what are you, or um, what are some of the things that you're trying to, you know, push as you kind of work through all that? Well, that's a great question. Um, what I would say for the career coaching, I think we all need someone to talk to that's been through it. Yep. And I go back to when I first started on my own, I had signed up with Somerset Hills Golf Club in, in New Jersey to help them. And their superintendent, a guy named Bob Dwyer, was you know, close to retirement. And the club was working through a package to, you know, to bridge him. And then, you know, he served the club for, I don't know, 20-some-odd years. And he deserved to retire. And uh, when when he that whole thing was settled, uh, the, the club said, well, you know, geez, we got to find a replacement. Well, no kidding. You know, you're not going to replace Bob who, you know, worked his butt off for 25 years or whatever it was. So can you help us? Yeah, I know a lot of guys. You know, what are you looking for? So that kind of got me into the search and recruit aspect of it. Yeah. So we hired a wonderful young man who's still there today. And what I, but what I noticed is, again, this was very similar to what I would go through with a lot of the USGA committees. You have a lot of very smart people that really have a passion for golf. But as you so correctly stated, we're dirt farmers, sod busters, grass asses, whatever. Yeah. You know, Caddyshack heroes. And I don't like that. I really don't. It really pisses me off, and I will be the first one in my New Jersey way to tell someone that it pisses me off. But I started watching how the candidates would react and how they handled certain questions and how they would act, speak, dress, look, and whatever. And I said, you know, they're not teaching you this at the GCSA. Right. And what they're really not teaching is when you leave that interview room, what they say behind your back once you're gone. So I just took notes, you know, and if they, if you interviewed and someone said, geez, can you believe the way, you know, he kind of says belt didn't match, match his shoes, you know, but that's what the non-agronomic, the NARP, the non-agronomic real person is going to look for. So I said, well, this, this is killing guys because we don't dress in suits on a regular basis. We don't have the exquisite writing skills or maybe we don't have the best speaking skills. And so I said, well, I got to start helping some of these guys. Yeah. And try to just, you know, and then I'd get a call with Mr. Morgan, would you look at my resume? And I, it, I'm not the best writer. I'm not Ernest Hemingway by any means, but I'm going, I can't read this stuff. Yeah. So, and my, and Karen is a wonderful editor. So we started helping people with their resumes and then it said, okay, you know, and, and well, here's what I think happened to me there. Well, you know, if, if you're, if you're going to go in there and you, you're not going to dress correctly or your suit doesn't fit, or you don't speak or shake hands correctly or know how to talk to someone. And, and as I said to a group, uh, I was doing a kind of a, a club little seminar, you know, when someone says, you know, or like, or, um, I really don't care for that method of speech. So we try to help people to, to, here's how you speak and speak. Well, listen to great orators, despite of your politics, or your beliefs, Bill Clinton is a wonderful speaker. Joel Osteen is a wonderful speaker. 
listen to how they interact with the people that are around them. The right. person that they are talking to is the most important individual at the time. And, and you know, they don't teach us in the GCSA because they don't sit in the interviews. Right. And I've had, I had one committee person after one candidate left and he's got too much hair. It's too much hair. Huh. I'm like, well, that's because you don't have enough. So I guess he probably would have a lot of hair, but yeah. you were going to judge someone because they have too much hair. No. So here's what I try to, here's what you're going to have to prepare for. Right. And how to, how to answer a question or how to, how to enter a room, how to dress, how to act. And it just kind of snowballed from there. And again, it goes back to what I said about, here's what I can do to give back. And if you get the job and it's in, in a very, if I play a, a very minuscule role in that, it makes me happy. What, what do you think? So of, that's kind of, yeah. What do you think? One that's of, how it works. What do you think um, one of the one or two most common mistakes that guys will make or gals that will make um, in sort of in an interview process? They come many times they come across. I want to give the answer before the question is asked. Right. And it's it's very difficult um, to sit back and be patient and wait for the question to be asked. And then present your answer. Right. And, it, you know, before you the question is asked, you start blurting out an answer. Well, one, you really haven't heard the question. Two, it's, it's rude. And three, I, I get you're smart, but you don't have to show me. So that that's one thing that uh, uh, I try to say, listen, and then how to talk to people. And as I said in the presentation, when you answer a question, you designate, in my opinion, 50 to 60 percent of the answer to the individual that asked you the question and you start with that person let's say i'm answering your question and then i'll go around the room and talk to the other people for a few minutes or whatever and then come back to you and and finish up my answer but never ever then go bj is that what you wanted to hear did i answer your question yeah. well then that shows the committee that you're not firm in your beliefs and you are just wanting to please which means that's a lot of BS coming out of you and you're not going to get the job. If, if you're asked, there's questions where you have to be thoughtful. There's questions where you have to give scientific um, uh, answers to a, to a question. And then there are opinion questions. You know, what's your favorite time on a golf course? Well, it's either morning or afternoon or night, you know. And, and if I say morning and you kind of don't really show any kind of response is that the, is that what you wanted me to say is that the right answer yeah. well, no just that's your opinion so i try to just we don't spend a lot of time in boardrooms i did spend a lot of time in boardrooms with very very smart people during my 21 years with the usga so i watched the inner dynamics right and i was taught you know and i was i'm a, I'm a passionate guy and and uh, i get enthusiastic about a lot of things and uh you know, it, it, that's not how you behave. You, 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 there's self-control. And and if you do it right, you'll be able to determine whether you are a success or not. Because if they keep asking you questions after your designated time has concluded, you've made a great impression. Now, as I tell people, don't be upset if you didn't get the job, because there might have been someone in that room that joined, that belongs to another club that may need a superintendent at some point. And he may say or she may say, you know, that Brian Parker guy was great. He's going to be a perfect fit because Tim is retired here at XYZ Club. We're not even going to do a search. We're just going to call, contact BJ and see if he wants a job. Yeah. Because he impressed me so much at this other interview. And that's what guys don't 
they don't understand. Yeah, I, I, I'm curious as to – I got a couple of thoughts. One is, is I'm, I agree with you, we don't talk or this is not taught enough or, ta- or talked about enough in our – where we can, many guys can get access to it, our gals, you know, like you said, in, in our conferencing shows. We're not talking about how to, you know, be career-driven or, or interview or some of these things. I feel like anyways, and that's part one of, like, how do we change – sort of the culture and the dynamics. And then two, it is, it is, you get, a, you interact with a lot of people that don't really understand what we do or, or think that they have their, their view of what we do is, is some, you know, thing they've either seen on TV or they've developed over time and they're and and you're having to talk to and get questions from these individuals. And it's, it's kind of hard to get through to them sometimes or communicate with them if you're, not sure about what you're doing or not confident in how you're doing. So I, I, I feel like that this is an important part of changing the culture and the dynamic is getting individuals to understand all of this and somehow get better at it. Cause we're all great at, I mean, I don't know any superintendents that, I mean, even, even if they're not as good as their course, they, they all know how to grow grass. I mean, there are a lot mm-hmm. of, a lot of them are no very question. good. You know, they're, you know, they may not know everything about particular <clears throat> chemicals and fertilizers, but I, you know, it's just hard to find. You can't convince me that somebody just outright doesn't know what they're doing if they're at, at this level or what they're mm-hmm. doing. So it's all the other intangibles, isn't it? Right. It's like, you know, um, what are the other things that they do well? Do they can they speak in front of a committee or you know pr- make a presentation? These are all the things that I think are starting to happen. They're starting to transition and make and things are starting to become. Um, we're or we're all starting to get better at it, but it, it's just I feel like that there's a lot more we can do. Oh, there is, there is because they and what I one of the things I really try to emphasize is. We have, as superintendents and turf grass, we have our own language, okay? We understand each other. And, and your point to the fact that the non-agronomic person doesn't understand us, and we have to convey our thoughts in an articulate fashion so that they right. do understand. And I try to say, listen, I, I get it. You have a BS, an MS, a, a GCS, or a CGCS after your name. And our business is incredibly technical, but they don't know that. Right. They don't know that. So you can't talk down. You have to learn how to have a conversation. And in the interview process, there's nothing wrong with asking a question of the person in the boardroom. You know, Mr. Parker, could you elaborate a little bit on that? Oh, or, oh, I'm a big Donald Ross fan, too. And here's two of my favorite Donald Ross courses. If you grew up at, you know, Donald Ross course in Nashville, boy, when I was in, in, uh, Virginia, I played another one. This, and so now you got a rapport, and now yeah. you can start talking to one another instead of this wall of uncertainty where I don't know anything about you, which I try to encourage the candidates, if you can get a list of the interviewees or the board people or the committee people, Google, find out something. More importantly is get a club history book so you can find out something about the club. Right. And now you can have a conversation. Now you're going to start to endear yourself to the committee because in, in, I just finished up the Kansas City Country Club uh, a couple months back. Everybody that interviewed would have no problem maintaining that golf course. The deal is you've got to convince the board you're the guy that they're going to bring home to meet the parents, so to speak. Right. 
And and I try to, you know, agronomically, you're correct. Every We all have an equal amount of knowledge and ability, but it's that stuff we don't practice. We don't wear a suit. We don't know how to act in a suit. We don't know how to speak. Do you, I had one young, uh, one, one young superintendent said, how do I shake a woman's hand? I said, well, you don't squeeze it like it's in a, you know, the death grip on WWF, but you don't also just give it like, you know, it's, 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 it's you know, Sister Mary Frances at, at your boarding school. You know, it, it, we're equal. Sure. And, and in, in the committee room, it's an egalitarian system. So treat that person just like you would anybody else. I mean, so they don't know how to do this and they feel intimidated. I, I just try to help them get over the intimidation and when they do, we do mock interviews, and, and I have them walk into the boardroom. I have them shake my hand. I have it's occasionally uh, Karen will help me. I have her shake her hand, sit down, speak. And the best thing about it is I tell them, you know, we, we do these seminars for you. It's individual, so you're not competing against your fellow superintendents. So if you mess up, okay, we'll do it again. Yeah. So now you kind of – and I'll ask pointed questions. And, <clears throat> you know, it's – you know, I learned this from a lawyer, and I won't give the exact uh, verbiage, but uh, learning how to listen is most important. So if I was to ask you, BJ, this is a very simple question. There's two answers, yes or no. Do you still kick your dog? No. <laughs> so you have kicked the dog. You see what I'm saying? Right. So you can get those type of questions. I would not want anybody to kick their dog but this is how pertinent you have to listen so you say yes or no okay well i've only got two answers do you still kick your dog oh god no i would never kick my dog right. so i'm going to say no well a smart question person is going to say well then you have kicked your that's lawyer speak right so you have to learn how to get around that and so what do you do well you answer a question with a question well, Mr. Parker, why, you know, Mr. Morton, why would you ask me such a foolish question? Yeah. And so then, you know, then you got the give and take, and that shows people you're thinking. So that's the, the I think, the skills of interviewing. Yeah, it makes sense. That's what I, said. I, I, uh, I think it. I think that's what I. That's where I had this conversation today. I, I just, I was my in my early days of interviewing. My my biggest mistake was trying to tell people what they wanted to hear instead of talking to them and, and, you know, being more authentic about me and exactly. And I, you know, I might've done well or done. Okay. I had all the knowledge, but I just didn't, I don't know. I don't know if it was listening was the problem, but it was, I felt like I was just, I was just trying to give them what they wanted. And, and I never really, was the person I should have been. And eventually uh, I got over that or I, I figured it out along the way, uh, you know, to, to be able to interview better. But uh, it was something, I, it was something that I struggled with uh, very early on. Well, I, I think, you know, as you, you, we talked about earlier and you made, you made a great point in saying, you know, we're just the grass guys. So I think there's extra pressure on us to prove that we're not right. And then we start to overthink, overspeak, over science, and you have that desire to, to tell people what they want to hear. And there's certain there's certain times that, you know, I'm I, everybody knows if you want to know what I think, just ask me. And I'm but I'm I was 
all the times in, in those USGA board meetings where whatever the issue was, a championship site or an equipment issue, a rules issue, and someone said, Tim, what do you think? I, I just told them whether they wanted to hear it or not. Right. Uh, because the, in, in that group setting, they're, they're trying to find out all the different answers and, and look at all the different variables. And it's very similar in the interview process when you are looking at anywhere from three to 10 people, maybe over the course of the interview process, that you just don't want these little, you know, clones to come in in navy blue suits and white shirts and little briefcases and not be different. Right. So you try to fit, the, I always try to fit in my searches the personality with the club because I know they're going to do agronomically, they're going to do fine. Their work ethic is going to be second to none and they're going to be great, polite, respectful individuals. But I got to I got to convince that anywhere from five to twenty five, I've had up to twenty five on a board, uh, which is just nuts. Um, I, when the guy when the young man got the job, I said, "Good luck," because I don't think you're going to get anything done with this group because there's too many people. Yeah. But uh, he's he's still there and enjoying it. But it just try to give him a little insight because again, you're looking at a thirty something, possibly talking to a sixty something, and there's a gap. Well, if I, you know, I worked with a young man recently who's 30-something, I'm a 60-something. Well, here's how you, you should talk to me. I'm, I'm all over the place, so I don't consider physically 60, mentally probably 14, but that's just the way I am. So I'm just trying to help these guys uh, get a grasp on how to get ahead in this business because we're not building a lot of golf courses. Superintendents are staying employed longer. Sure. Uh, and, and it's, it's, it's a tough road to get that job. Yeah. It's becoming very, uh, very difficult, uh, to, I mean, I would, I don't know. I don't know any numbers. You may know this more than me, but if a job comes open, especially a, a, a higher end prestigious job, I, I can't imagine how many applicants they get. Uh, I just, I mean, I, it, probably mind-blowing if you if you you might know uh, a little closer to that but and then then it I don't know how that they pick I don't I mean like I said most everybody's I mean if you looked at my resume I mean it's it looks like I mean I could do just about anything and and you know and how do you stand out you know just based on a resume I you know it's kind of well there's an I think there's also and you're correct in all those points uh, but I also think there's a way to write a resume and a cover letter and it depends if they're asking you to kind of give some description in a cover letter, then you kind of have to follow protocol. Sure. But to me, a cover letter is, you know, I'm, I'm, this is who I am. This is my application for a said position. I look forward to hearing from you as quickly as possible. And that's it. All of a sudden we get into, as I said, we get into I, 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 and we become Popeye and we're in the Navy and it's I, 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 and that, we don't need to do that. We, we overwrite, we overspeak in that particular scenario. But a resume, I found that, uh, you know, I, I like your career objective at top. I like to see your education at top. Some people disagree with that, and that's okay. Yeah. And then you get into your kind of your career calendar, and that has to be accurate and so on. And, uh, you know, the Southeast, I mean, everybody's all football, basketball, so it's a lot of kidding about, well, you know, you went to Tennessee, I went to Duke or Alabama versus Georgia. So everybody tries to have some fun with it. And so I, I think that's one way to get the conversation started by, you know, putting your education, especially here in the Southeast, you know, sure. did you go to school at NC State or UT or 
Mississippi State or Georgia, you know, that, you know, if I went to Tennessee, well, heck, what's his name down at Mississippi State? He didn't know anything about, he can't hardly get green side up, let alone tell me how to control POA. But that's just, <laughs> that's just fun. You know, that's just the way that goes. So, yeah. but I want people to be relaxed. And, and, and the more you interview, the better you get at it. It's just like speaking in public. Yeah. The more you speak in public, the better you become or, or even tournament golf. I mean, you can hit balls really well in the range. You can shoot low numbers. You can play well with your buddies. And then all of a sudden it's a club championship and you've never been there before, or it's a state event or a local or a national. And it's a whole progression yep. to get to being proficient at what you do. That's all. Well, what's, what's, uh, what's your, fa- one of your favorite interview questions? Do you have one? <sighs> favorite. You don't have to give away all your secrets. No, I, I think people have to be aware, you know, as I said, you know, there's, there's opinion questions, you know, what's your favorite golf course, right? You know, what's your favorite time? What's your favorite color? Uh, and those are, but I think I like to find out one good question is, you know, you, you follow it up with, have you ever hired a friend? You know, you may be the superintendent and I'm looking for work and we're good friends. Why don't you come to work for me, Tim? And then have you ever had to fire that individual? I want to see how somebody, you know, their mind works. And, uh, you know, do you believe, you know, if you're a southern golf course and there might be the opportunity to grow bent grass, well, do you think you can grow bent grass and why do we have to change the Bermuda? I want people to think. I just want them to kind of take a pause. And there's nothing wrong with, with going, well, that's a great question. Let me think about that. I will get, can we get back to that? And people feel they have to give an answer immediately. I don't think you do. Huh. If you don't have an answer, say, you know, Mr. Parker, that's a great question. Can we can give me a chance to think about that? And then can we circle back? Well, that's a great sign to a lot of, if you, I did one search where the search chairman was a former secretary of the air force for, I don't know what administration, well, I think 41's administration. And he was he really was blown away. Doctor Doctor his name was Rice, uh, Don Rice, Doctor Rice, brilliant individual. And he was so impressed when a superintendent, you know what, Doctor, I don't have the answer. Let me think about that for a second. And he was like, I like guy that just just doesn't jump into an answer, and just to try to prove how smart he is. So I think you you have to kind of learn to to like a comedian, uh, you learn to gauge the room, and that's that's a skill a lot of people don't have. And, I, and we just try to help them with that. But the questions are, you know, hiring and firing, disciplinary. Um, but usually I try to find something um, that's key to the club that no one else would think about on the committee. And I'll give you an example. Oakmont Country Club in California. Um, they had, they've been around for a long time. Back in the 30s, the clubhouse burnt to the ground. Uh, for whatever reason, and one of the members who was known as affectionately as the Banana King of <laughs> Southern California, because he imported bananas from sure. you know wherever, he donated a million dollars and and uh, um, rebuilt the club. So here's a premier member in the history of the club, right? You know, reestablished the club and affectionately known as the Banana King. So okay, at the end of the interview, finally someone says, "Well, BJ, we've been asking you questions and blah blah blah." And uh, you answered and said, do you have any, anything else? And, and I said, yes, yes, I have one more question. BJ, do you like bananas? And, you know, if, if you've read the history book and know that the Banana King was 
essential to the success of the club, you'd go, yes, I do. And, you know, members, some couple of members picked up on that. And some were like, what do you, what the, do you like bananas? <laughs> and I'm like, you're not reading your own history. This, this was an integral part to the club history. And that shows that that candidate did some research. Yeah. So I try to throw a curveball in at the end. That's all. And just see how they finish up. Well, I I definitely think it's good stuff. I, I'm, like I said before, I'm really, uh, you know, I'm trying to, help teach anywhere I can, you know, to offer advice, things that I've learned over the years and, and obviously haven't learned everything and haven't, haven't gotten it all right. But I, I just, I'm a firm believer that, um, we can change the narrative in our industry, especially in the golf you know, industry, as far as superintendents and assistants and mechanics and the, the golf, it's just gotten so technical. It's a lot different than just being a, like you said, a, a side layer, grass grower, you know, dirt mover. Um, and I, you know, I just, I want to see guys succeed because uh, we're a great for family. We're, we're willing to help anybody and everybody. Um, but a lot of times, you know, things, things really don't progress the way you would want them to. And, and guys and gals, they're just, just trying to fit in or change the narrative. And, and there's just these tools that are available that, you know, for lack of a better word, that we're just not getting them out there to them. And so I'm trying mm -hmm. to change that. It sounds like you're pushing that. And, and um, you know, I'm, I, believe, I believe wholeheartedly in that. Well, the superintendent is responsible for the number one asset of any club, and that's the golf course. Because I didn't, I didn't join any club that we've ever belonged to because of the tennis courts or the swimming pool. And as my dad always said when he was president of the club, we had six tennis courts. And he'd walk by on a, you know, after his round on Saturday morning and go, look, just look. I said, what do you mean, look? There's six tennis courts. He said, here's what you're going to deal with. You're going to deal with nice shot, nice shot. Let's have a Coke. And, you know, there's this, the, 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 golf, industry, the golf member is giving more back in those days than any other member. So what's the most important asset of a club? It's the golf course. Yeah. So, you're you're in the same boat. You're doing a wonderful job and in, in trying to help because we have a responsibility to the next bunch of superintendents that 30 years from now, when they're in their 60s, they go, you know, here here's the deal. We've yeah. had great people to help us, and we we have changed the face of the industry. My only warning would be, and we we have we we are the Rodney Dangerfield of golf. Uh, we get no respect. It's self-imposed in many instances. Right. And but but we're also equally balanced in that we have a chip on each shoulder, so you got to get over that. And we're trying to impress people with science, data, and, and actuals, and you know whatever this, the 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 um, whatever they call it in baseball. And you know you, the the um, when they when the, everything lines up, they do a certain thing because the, the analytics. You know, it, it it golf is not as much as it is numbers. It is a really touchy feely business. If you're an architect and building, you're, you're touching dirt and you're moving soil around and you're, you're, you're getting your hands dirty. If you're a superintendent, you're outside and on the turf and you're, you're looking, you're feeling moisture or dryness or heat or cold. If you're a golf, a well-established uh, golfer, you have your hands on a club. Right. If you're a teacher, you have your hands on your student, putting them in the right position. If you're a merchandiser, you're finding the right feel for material to sell a shirt, a windbreaker, a pair of shorts, whatever. It's a very touchy-feely business. Yep. 
And if we overcomplicate it, we're going to be in pro- we're going to have a problem. I agree with that. Is there any um, books or anything that you would recommend, or you or anything literature-wise that you people could go check out that sort of would help in in some of these areas that we talked about? Well, in, I think um, as I said in in the presentation. You know, the more you read, the better your vocabulary comes. Right. Becomes. The readers are leaders. And you can then talk authoritatively, not like you're an expert, but if you if you read the financial section, you read the business section, you read world affairs, for what it's worth, keep up with politics, even though it's a taboo even to mention yeah. that circus anymore. So uh, and, and then the, there's a very simple book called The Perfect Presenter, which will help you as a superintendent, an assistant, whomever. Uh, to try to to just have a better image when you're whether you're speaking to your green committee, your golf committee, your board, a general membership meeting, or you're in an interview, it's just how to look professional. And I, I usually get I'll call a member out and during a search, it's, you know, if you come in in a suit and tie and some of well, you clean up nice for a suit. Come on, clean up nice. This individual's taking the time to invest in his reputation to show you how he will or she will represent you as a member, represent our profession and you as a club if they ever go out in public. Right. So I, 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 you're not going to wear a suit to work every day. I, I did that. It's not fun, you know, but you still have to be professional and show the world how you're going to represent one yourself and then everything else involved with your job and be professional and be, you know, John Jennings out at Shinnecock. I know John gets kitted a little bit for always being a suit at the GCSA or whatever. You know, John has represented his club and our profession excellently ever since I met him. And I think he's a shining example. Sure. And you look at his career from Fairfield to Chicago Golf Club and now at Shinnecock. I mean, he's a standard bearer for our organization. Yep. Yeah. And and some superintendents, listen, if you're, you know, out in the, in the mountains in the Rockies somewhere or in the West Texas desert or something, I get it. But there still comes a time when we've got to kind of break the mold a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, that's well said. I, I don't. Uh, I think it's happening. I think it's slowly but surely it's happening. But um, you know, uh, conversations like this and and getting more and more um, things out there for individuals to have access to and to you know you know read and whatever they can do, it, it's just going to make things better. That's there's yes, no it is. It. Yes, it is because they are the most valuable person on the property. Yeah, no question. I've said that all along. I, I never, never really dawns on me why members and, you know, particularly in private clubs, but a lot, you know, most other clubs, they don't understand that concept that the, that the superintendent is somehow takes care of the most valuable asset or the number one asset of the club and why they're not valued in that way. In a lot of ways, they don't, I don't see how those donors, uh, you know, coordinate or, um, they don't seem to have the, um, I don't know what I'm trying. You know, they just don't have the mindset that that's actually true, but it is. It's 100 percent true. Mm-hmm. Well, that's where the superintendent has to know their numbers, yeah. and I was talking about that in the presentation. And you know your numbers, you know your job. Yeah. That's where the superintendent needs to get with the general manager, the accounting department, the finance chairman, and understand where the money is going in the overall financial workings of the club. So when someone criticizes, hey, you know. 
we're this is where we spend our money this is where we make our money and this is what i'm responsible for right not that i'm anybody special but when i tell you that we need more because of uh 70 of the reason people join the club is to play the golf course you know the hamburger and the beer is going to taste better the better the golf course is absolutely absolutely you know and the, and the logo is going to look better and everything's going to be better yeah because no one's going to complain, you know, it's going to, oh, you know, it's like I said, I'm not picking on tennis players, I, even though I kind of am. I'm not joining for the tennis. If I'm going to, if I'm a tennis person, I want to join a tennis club. Right. I mean, that's the way it looks. Like. But those are just extra amenities. Yep. So. Well, uh, I appreciate you sitting down. I know your time is valuable. I, um, is there anything that I didn't ask that you wish that I would have? Uh, I know we covered a lot of stuff. We covered a lot. I thank you for your time as yeah. well, because this is, uh, and and I appreciate your personality, because I think we probably could go all night long. So we over, and this would be a, 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 a one of those sports talk things where you yeah. just get going and and uh, you know be like an ESPN program here after a while. So very good on your end of things. I appreciate it, and and I really appreciate what you're doing for our our group as well. So. Um, not really. I just want to thank everybody uh, for listening and thank you for your time. I really enjoy it. Well, I appreciate it. This is valuable. I like. I agree with you. I, I can sit down sometimes and talk shop and a lot of these, a lot of these things for hours. But it always opens up the door for more communication, follow up. You know, doing it again. Uh, you know, catching back up, and that's what I enjoy. And and uh, you know, everybody's time is valuable. And and uh, just wanted to um, sit down with you for a little bit and pick your brain. Well, thank you very much. Well, um, I will share this out on social media, and but tell everybody if they can follow you or get a hold of you. You want to give out your information, uh, you can do that, and then I'll and I'll actually uh, tag it when I send it all out. Oh, okay. Well, it's Aspire Golf, and it's uh, Aspire Dash Golf. Okay. Dot com is the website, and the phone number is nine zero eight six three five. 7978 and we're located in Hillhead, South Carolina. Do you do any uh I know you're on Twitter. Do you do you want to give that out as well? Your Twitter handle? Uh yes, yeah, so I think it's just at Tim Morgan. Okay. I, I I got into that a while back yeah. and I just try to uh keep everybody aware of it's, what's out there. I was picking on the Poa Greens the last couple of weeks, all yeah. the announcers having a little problem with broccoli and all that stuff. But Pebble Beach, Torrey Pines and Riviera look marvelous and and uh, it was a real treat to watch those three events. So we had a, um, I'll end. The, I guess we can end on this. We had a little, uh, what I would call a life lesson <coughs> happen in the uh, in the playoff yesterday, where Max Homa hits it, and it looks like he's dead, doesn't have anything, and Tony's looking like he's going to win the tournament, and you know Ma Max never gave up, and he pulled off a, a shot, a great shot, and got it up and down, and. Lo and behold, he wins the tournament. So I, I, I think there's something in there about how not, never give up. And, and uh, no matter how bad it looks, you can always come out looking better. Yes, you can. And I think that's probably one of the main characteristics of the golf course superintendent is they will not give up no matter how bad it gets. Yep. That, that's dedication to the cause, and that's what makes them the, the most valuable player in our, in our sport. Well, we'll end on that. I, I certainly agree with you. And, Tim, it's been uh, wonderful talking to you. I hope we get to do this again. I know we will do it again. And uh, and if I can do anything for you, don't hesitate to reach out to me. I appreciate it. Well, thank it. you. Thank you, and I thank all the listeners. All right. You all have a great day and stay healthy. All right. Until next time, I'll talk to you soon.